Greetings, whoever and wherever you may be, as you're listening to this podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. It's a pleasure to welcome you to this podcast. If you're here for the first time, a particular greeting. If you're back again, it's good to have you with us. If you're following us uh, to read along with Spurgeon's sermons, you can find the weekly readings at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can get a newsletter that gives you a featured sermon as well as the daily readings, or you can pick up quotes most days on X at Reading Spurgeon. If you'd like a sample of the kind of material we select, uh, you can search From the Heart of Spurgeon on Amazon and find a collection from Volume 1 of the new Park Street pulpit of that volume's featured sermons. What we do each week is to identify a sermon that gives us a real flavour of Spurgeon's output, and then we focus in on that one. And as we've worked our way week by week through these sermons, we're into the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 18. Today we're reading Sermon 1035, the week as a whole, Sermon 1032 through to 1038. But 1035 is our featured sermon, and it is entitled The Real Presence, The Great Want of the Church, and it was delivered on the Lord's Day morning of February the 11th, 1872, at the Tabernacle in Newington. Spurgeon's text is Solomon's Song, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up nor awake my love till he please. Now, this is uh, typically Spurgeon's approach to texts from the Song of Solomon. Now, Spurgeon approaches this in a fashion that would be uh, perhaps very Puritan, typically considering it as an allegory of the love between Christ and his church and really not giving uh, a great deal of attention to uh, anything that might suggest a a more human expression of love. I think that's uh, primarily the right way to apply it, although uh, I do wonder if sometimes they they overlook the fact that uh, if the love between a a husband and a wife is uh, properly a representation of the love that Christ has for his church, that Christ's love for his church, according to Ephesians 5, is the highest and and formative love, then it's not at least wrong to consider uh, those aspects of it, uh, whether in the Old or the New Testament. But I think it's a, a helpful way to handle it, to see here represented to us the way that Christ delights in his bride and the way that the bride of Christ delights in the bridegroom. Now that presents us with a couple of challenges because there are some people who absolutely neglect this kind of handling of the scriptures, not just in the song, but in uh, any other portion. And there are some people who obsess about it as if it becomes the only or perhaps the highest way to preach. We're hoping not to fall into uh, either side of that uh, that that path, not to drop into either ditch, except to say that here uh, we've got a, a beautiful experimental statement of the affection that the church has for Christ and the desire that we should have 
for our Lord Jesus among us. I'm not going to make many more comments on the way that Spurgeon approaches the text in that overarching sense, uh, but uh, just to take account of the fact that he's he's really going to draw out spiritual truths from the, the metaphors and the images from the Song of Solomon at this point. Now, he begins by making something very clear, and it relates to the fact that he's talking about the real presence. So he starts off with quite a developed introduction, and this is what he has to say. Is it necessary to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is no longer corporeally present in his church or bodily present? It ought not to be needful to assert so evident a truth, and yet it is important to do so. He says there are some people who will teach what they're pleased to call the holy sacrament presents Christ actually in his flesh and blood. He points out that our bodily humanity could not be present in more places than one at one time, and if Christ's humanity be like ours, it cannot be in an unlimited number of places at once. In fact, it can only be in one place. Where that place is, we know from Scripture, for he sits at the right hand of God, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Then, having addressed, at least in part, the the sacramentalism of the Roman Catholics and others like them, he wants us to remember also that because the Lord Jesus is absent corporeally, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is with us. So Christ is still very much with us, but now by his Spirit. And if Christ were with us in body, then the Spirit would not be upon the earth. So he then points out again, No word of mine this morning is intended to have the remotest connection with any sacramental presence of the corporeal nature of our Lord. But having guarded ourselves so as not to be misunderstood, let us proceed to speak of another presence of our blessed Lord. So the, the opening of his introduction is, is a, a more negative one. This is not what I am saying. Now, positively, this is what I want you to understand. It's a good reminder for us as preachers that, that this is uh, something, if we don't do it in the introduction, that we may still need to do in part of our sermon. I'm not saying this or this or this. That would be an error. But I am saying this. What is Spurgeon saying? that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is present in his church by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is this day the representative of Christ in the midst of the church, and it is in the power and the energy of the Holy Ghost that Christ is with us always and will be even to the end of the world. Here then is typical Spurgeon, his emphasis on the Holy Spirit as the present representative with us of Jesus Christ and the source of all our good and all spiritual power that we enjoy. It is by the working of the Spirit of God that Christ's presence in the church is manifested, he says, and we are to expect no other presence than that. We have the spiritual divine presence of the second person of the Blessed Trinity and the presence of Christ Jesus also in the power of his representative on earth, the Holy Ghost. So then, if a church be without the Spirit of God in it, it may have a name to live, but it is dead. And you know that after death there follows corruption, corruption which breeds foulness and disease. So let the Spirit of God be in the church, then there is power given to all her ministries, whether they be ministries of public testimony in the preaching of the word, 
or ministries of holy love among the brothers, or ministries of individual earnestness to the outside world, they will all be clothed with energy in the fullness of the power of the Lord Jesus. And so he declares, Give us the Spirit of God, and we will ask no endowments from the state, nor sigh for the prestige of princely patronage. Endow us, O God, with the Holy Ghost, and we have all we need. The poverty of the members, their want of learning, their want of rank, all these shall be as nothing. The Holy Ghost can make amends for all deficiencies and clothe his poor and obscure people with an energy at which the world shall tremble. This made the apostolic church mighty. She had the Holy Ghost outpoured upon her. The lack of this made the medieval ages dark as midnight, for men contended about words and letters, but forgot the Spirit. The return of this inestimable blessing has given us every true revival. The working of the eternal Spirit, the presence of Christ in the midst of his people, is the Son of Righteousness arising with healing beneath his wings. That's all introduction. That's Spurgeon saying, it's not about the real presence as the sacramentalist understands it, as if at the supper of the Lord we really have the body and blood of the Lord Jesus but rather it is that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is with us. Christ has ascended bodily into heaven and by token of his ascension has poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church and it is the Spirit of Christ that now we crave in our midst. And so he says, it becomes then the great desire of every earnest Christian who loves the church of God that Christ should be in the church and that by his Spirit he should work wonders there. And I have selected this text, so you see where he's going, I have selected this text with the view of stirring up the spiritual-minded among you to seek so great a blessing. So, the point that he wants to make is that Christ has given the Spirit to the church, and it is the presence of Christ by his Spirit that we crave, And this text he has chosen as a means of communicating to us something of the blessedness of Christ's presence by his Spirit that we as Christians and as Christian churches should crave. I hope that's clear. So, first, we learn from the text that before ever we can bring the well-beloved into our mother's house, the church, and there you're already hearing how he's using the, the metaphor, the allegory of the text, the mother's house is the church, first we must find Christ personally for ourselves. If we would bless the church, he says, we must ourselves occupy a higher platform than that of being merely saved. We must be believers, walking in fellowship with Christ and having in that respect found him whom our soul loves. There are many believers who have only just enough grace to enable us to hope that they are alive. They have no strength with which to work for God's cause. They have not an arm to lend to the help of others. Neither can they even see that which would comfort others, for they are blind and cannot see afar off. They want all their sight and all their strength for themselves. Now, I think we have to be a little wary here. There are points at which Spurgeon can sound as if he's preaching what would be called a second blessing theology. It has various forms. I I don't think he's going that far. I hope he's not going that far. I think he's talking about the difference between those who 
who, who live, as one of the, the hymn writers says, live at a poor dying rate. True believers, yes, but, but living feeble and, and, and low spiritual lives. He says what we need is the, the, the Spirit of Christ with us, not just in the sense that he is present, but that we know and enjoy his present ministry and power. That's so important if it, that, that, that be uh, in, felt and known in our souls. And so he says, if you would bring in Christ into the church which you love, then first of all, your inmost soul must so love Christ that you cannot live without his company. You see, he's not talking here about the difference between uh, a Christian who's a Christian and a professing Christian who's not. But, but Christians who, who, who have this, this deep sense of, of the preciousness of the Lord Jesus. Are there not such hearts here, he asks, virgin minds in whom Christ is first, last, midst, chief, and all in all? Oh, if there be, ye are the men, ye are the women, who finding your beloved can bring him into the church. Then these ardent lovers of Jesus must diligently seek him. They themselves have work to do. Let us resolve this morning that there shall be no rest unto our souls until once again he has returned unto us in the fullness of his manifested love to abide in our hearts. Seek him, brother. Seek him, sister. He is not far from any of you, but do seek him with an intense longing for him. For until you do, you are not the man to bring him into the assembly of the brothers. Furthermore, in seeking the Lord in this way, we must use all ministries. The spouse inquired of the watchman. See how he's drawing those connections again, using them to, to have this suggestive approach to, to the, the practicalities. So I charge you, my dear hearers, never rest content with listening to me. Do not imagine that hearing the truth preached simply and earnestly will of itself be a blessing to your souls. Far, far beyond the servant, pass to the master. Be this the longing of each heart, each Sabbath day. Lord, give me fellowship with thyself. So you've got to make the most of the ministries. You've got to go beyond the forms. You've got to get into the very substance. Note, he says, too, that we must search to the very utmost till we find our beloved. He's calling us, uh, calling us higher, calling us to uh, closer to, to Christ. The Christian must leave no stone unturned till he gets back his fellowship with Christ. If any sin obstructs the way, it must be rigorously given up. If there be any neglected duty, it must be earnestly discharged. If there be any higher walk of grace, which is necessary to continuous fellowship, we must ascend it, fearing no hill of difficulty. Seek him, says Spurgeon. Seek after him, pursue him. Give your time and your energy to finding him. Oh, that we had a chosen band of elect spirits of this race, for surely the whole church would be revived through their influence. God, even our own God, would bless us. He asks us then, every believer, to ask a few questions of themselves, such as these. Am I walking in constant fellowship with Christ? If I am not, why not? Is it that I am worldly? Is it that I am proud or indolent? That's lazy or envious or careless. Am I indulging myself in any sin? Is there anything whatever that divides me from Christ my Lord? 
Let this be the resolution of every one of the Lord's people. From this time forth I will seek unto the Lord my Saviour, and I will not be satisfied until I can say, I am coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon the Beloved. We need then to seek him, to find him in this particular sense, says Spurgeon. Brings us to the second point of the subject. If we'd be a blessing to the church and have found Christ, we must take care to retain him. I found him whom my soul loves, I held him, and I would not let him go. Ah, he bemoans, how fickle are our spirits. We are walking with Christ, rejoicing, leaping for joy, and anon the cold frosts of worldliness come over us, and we depart from him. We will never be strong to impart great blessings to others till you cease to wander and learn the meaning of that text, Abide in me. Not look at me, not come near to me and then go away from me, but abide in me. He says, again turning to the text, trying to bring out of it the experience of God's people or perhaps to read into it the experience of God's people, uh, not in a in a false way, but to, to understand how it reflects and reveals something of our experience. Jesus will go away if he be not held. Spurgeon's point is not that the Lord Jesus is careless of keeping company with his people, but he delights to be delighted in. If you are willing to lose Christ's company, he says, Christ is never intrusive. He will go away from you and leave you till you know his value and begin to pine for him. Really interesting the, the way that he, he makes that point. Uh, so you need to be careful how you handle some of this language. It would be possible to take this in the wrong way and, and give that idea that, that Christ doesn't care. But Spurgeon is really saying, if you don't care, you will lose Christ. More positively, and, and showing the, the other side then of that, that you should note that Christ is very willing to be held. He's not looking to go away. Christ is willing to be held and loves that sacred violence which takes him by force, that holy diligence which leaves not a gap open by which he may escape, but shuts every door, bars every bolt, and says, I have thee now, and I will take care that if I lose thee it shall be through no fault of mine. Jesus is willing enough to be retained by hearts which are full of his love. And then, wherever you have Christ, please remember that you are able to hold him. He says, the one who held Christ in the song was no stronger than you are. But have you then grasped him? Is he with you? Now then, hold him fast by your faith. Trust him implicitly. Rest in him for every day's cares, for every moment's ills. Walk by faith and he will walk with you. Hold him also with the grasp of love. Let your whole heart go out towards him. Embrace him with the arms of mighty affection. Enchain him with ardent admiration. Lay hold upon him by faith and clasp him with love. Be also much in prayer. Prayer casts a chain about him. He never leaves the heart that prays. There's a sweet perfume about prayer that always attracts the Lord. Wherever he perceives it rising up to heaven, there will he be. Hold him too by your obedience to him. Never quarrel with him. Let him have his way. He will stop in any house where he can be master. He will stay nowhere where some other will lords it over his. Watch his words. Be careful to obey them all. Be very tender in your conduct so that nothing grieves him. Show to him that you are ready to suffer for his sake. I really wonder if I break in at this point. I really wonder if we're happy today with that kind of absolute language, with that kind of absolute submissiveness to Christ. 
whether or not there's not perhaps a bit of the, the modern man's resentment that can creep in. Why should Christ only stop where he can be master? Why must I let Christ have his way? What is that kind of obedience? That doesn't sound like the kind of thing I want to indulge in. But my friends, this is discipleship. I believe, says Spurgeon, that where there is a prayerful, careful, holy, loving, believing walk towards Jesus, the fellowship of the saint with his Lord will not be broken, but it may continue for months and years. There is no reason except in ourselves why fellowship with Jesus should not continue throughout an entire life. And oh, if it did, it would make earth into heaven and lift us up to the condition of angels, if not beyond them, and we should be the men who would bring Christ into the church and through the church into the world. And then before he moves on to his third point, one more thing that he wants us to grasp, that the spouse says, I held him. I didn't hold a system. I didn't hold a a creed. I didn't uh, hold a, a, a kind of churchmanship. I held Jesus Christ. I held him and would not let him go. And that is the best grip that the soul ever gets when she lays hold of Jesus Christ. Again, we know that Spurgeon is is committed to a his 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 baptistic convictions. He's committed. He's a uh, in in at least in some measure a confessional Christian, holding to the 1677-89 Baptist Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession. He's unashamed in standing up for the truth that he believes, but he is that because he has Christ first. Thou Son of God made flesh for me. Thou art all my salvation and all my desire. I rest on thee only without a shadow of mixture of any other hope, and I love thee supremely, desiring to honour thee and to obey thee in life and until death. I hold thee, thou covenant angel, and I will not let thee go. Am I wrong to hear in that even echoes of the marriage covenant? Uh, Spurgeon is leaning into that language and making it his own in his desires for and delights in Jesus Christ. And he's doing so unashamedly. There's nothing impure. There's nothing untoward in this affection for the Lord Jesus. But now Spurgeon's moving forward from that individual through what he's been saying into the more fully corporate that the that the believer finding Christ now brings him into the church. There's the spouse finding Christ and bringing him into my mother's house. By the Holy Spirit we were begotten unto newness of life, but it was in the church and through the preaching of the word there that we were brought into the light of life. We owe our conversion, the most of us, to some earnest teacher of the truth in the church of God or to some of those godly works which were written by Christian men. Through the church's instrumentality, the Bible itself has been preserved to us, and by her the gospel has been preached to every age. She is our mother, and we love her. That's uh, that's genuine John Calvin right there. Uh, Spurgeon's a, a real Calvinist in that sense also. Did I hear a harsh but honest voice exclaim, he asks, but I find much fault with the church. Well, brother, if you love her, you'll go backward and cast a mantle over all. That is, you won't expose her nakedness, but rather seek to cover and protect her. The more sickly she is, the more she wants Christ to be her strength and physician. And I say therefore to you, dear friend, above all things, seek to bring Christ into an imperfect church and a weak church and an erring church, that she may become strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
How are we to do that? By three means, by testimony, by prayers, and by example. I hope that often Christ is here when I have borne testimony to you of his power to save. And he says you can do the same thing, not just the public preaching, but also the, uh, the, the speaking of the saints. Others can do it by their prayers. There's a mysterious efficacy in the prayers of men who dwell near to God. Even if they were compelled to keep their beds and to do nothing but pray, they would pour benedictions upon the church. We want our dear sick friends to get well and come among us at once in full health. But I do not know, I do not know, they may be more service to the church where they are, that is, praying to God. Some of those dear ones whose faces we miss from among us keep up the perpetual ministry of intercession. Their incense of prayer goes up at all hours. When the most of us are rightly enough at sleep, they are compelled to wake and therefore are led still to pray. And then what about example? You know what I mean, Sir Spurgeon. There's a very manner and air about some Christian men which honours Christ and benefits his people. They may not be gifted in speech, but their very spirit speaks. They are so gentle, loving, tender, earnest, truthful, upright, gracious. Their paths, like those of God himself, drop fatness. So take heed of living a weak life, a life without God in it, a life without Christ in it, a life which a very Pharisee might live. Seek to live the life of a true-born child of God, lest you hinder the church's usefulness and deprive her of her Lord's presence. And so he says, the last point is to charge the church that she be careful not to disturb the Lord's repose. So you've got the, the individual believer valuing Christ for themselves. Then you've got the, uh, that individual believer seeking to retain Christ and laying hold of him and keeping hold upon him to bring him into the church. And now for the whole church not to disturb the Lord's rest. He wants us to understand that the Lord Jesus in his church is not indifferent to, that is, he's not careless about the conduct of his people. We are not to suppose that because the sin of all God's elect is pardoned, that therefore it is of small consequence how they live. No antinomian Spurgeon here. By no manner of means, he says, the master of this great house is not blind nor deaf, neither is he a person who is utterly careless as to how the house is managed. On the contrary, as God is a jealous God, so is Christ a jealous husband to his church. He will not tolerate in her what he would not tolerate in the world. Talks about Ananias and Sapphira as examples. Wherever then there is a true church of God, the judgments of God are always going on in it. That's a, a fearful thought, isn't it? I speak now not only what I've read, but what I've known and seen with my own eyes, he says. I'm as sure of it as I am of any fact in history. He talks about the, uh, the, the scriptural instances of this and then underscores it. The Lord Jesus Christ, looking around his church, if he sees anything evil in it, will do one of two things. Either he will go right away from his church because the evil is tolerated there and he will leave that church to be like Laodicea to go on from bad to worse till it becomes no church at all or else he will come and trim the lamp or to use the figure of the 15th of John, he will prune the vine branch and with his knife will cut off this member and the other and cast them into the fire. While, as for the rest, he will cut them till they bleed again because they are fruit-bearing members, but they have too much wood 
and he wants them to bring forth more fruit. It is not a trifling matter to be in the church of God. God's fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. His fan is in his hand and he shall thoroughly purge what? The world? Oh no, his floor, the church. And then again, he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify what? The heathen nations? No, the sons of Levi, his own people, so that Christ is not indifferent to what is going on in the church and it is needful that when he comes to the church to take his repose, his rest, and solace himself there, we should not stir him up nor awake him till he please. What does that mean? He will go away, says the preacher, if we grow proud. If we're boastful and say, there's some reason why God should bless us and should begin to speak hectoringly towards weaker brethren, critically and arrogantly, the Lord will let us know that not unto us, not unto us, but unto his name shall be all the glory. Again, if there be a want of love among us, the Lord of love will be offended. If any of you have half a hard thought towards another, get rid of it. If there be the beginnings of anything like jealousy, quench the sparks. Leave off strife, says Solomon, before it be meddled with, as if he had said, end it before you begin it, which, though it seems strangely paradoxical, is most wise advice. He talks about the the rows and the hinds of the field, again using the illustration, and says that uh, with such sensitive creatures, even the breath of the hunter tainting the breeze puts them to speedy flight, and so it is with Christ. A little thing, a very little thing, will drive him from us, and it may be many a day before our repentance shall be able to find him again. So he says now positively, some things then do give our Lord rest. Whenever he sees true repentance, real faith, holy consecration, purity of life, chastity of love, there Christ rests. I believe he finds no sweeter happiness even in heaven than the happiness of accepting his people's prayers and praises. Our love is very sweet to him. Our deeds of gratitude are very precious. The broken alabaster boxes of self-sacrifices done for him are very fair in his esteem. So, let us be watchful against all impurity. Anything like uncleanness in a Christian will soon send the master away from the church. You know what it was that brought evil upon the house of Eli. It was because his sons made themselves vile even at the tabernacle door. The young people in that case were the immediate cause of the mischief, but it was the fault of the elder ones that they restrained them not. Watch against all evil passions and corrupt desires. Something to be said for those who are now engaging, not just in uh, heterosexual immorality, but are celebrating, cultivating and endorsing a homosexual immorality. And then again, a want of prayer, a lack of prayer will send him away. There are members of some churches who never come to the prayer meetings. Spurgeon's shocked by that, horrified. I should be afraid that their private prayers then cannot be any too earnest. Of course, we speak not of those who have good excuse, but there are some who habitually and willfully neglect the assembling of themselves together, and these are worthy of condemnation. Oh, let us continue a prayerful church as we have hitherto been. Otherwise, the master may say, they do not value the blessing for they will not even ask for it. They evidently do not care about my spirit, for they will not meet together and cry for him. Do not grieve him by any such negligence of prayer. And then last, 
we may grieve the spirit by worldliness. You know, the children of Israel in the wilderness provoked him and their provocation mostly took the form of murmuring because they wanted what they'd had and not the mercies that God had given to them. So he concludes, let me ask you to be more in prayer. Let me pray you to live nearer to him. Let me entreat you for the church's sake and for the world's sake to be more thoroughly Christ's than you ever have been. And may the power of the Holy Spirit enable you in this. May you stand as a sparkling pile of precious gems inhabited by the eternal spirit to the praise and the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Amen. I don't know if you have any uh, difficulty with the way Spurgeon handles that text. Whether or not you do, uh, I suggest to you that the points he makes are substantially good and valid ones. Let us understand the importance of seeking, knowing, keeping and enjoying the presence of the Lord Jesus by his Spirit in the church. If this is the, the kind of preaching that you think is preaching par excellence, then let me encourage you not to just celebrate the form, but to feel the force of what Spurgeon says, because there's, there's nothing soft or insubstantial in what he exhorts in this sermon. Let us seek after Christ, and let us seek by all means to hold fast to him. I hope that will set us up, God willing, for next week, when we come on to Sermon 1042, A Persuasive to Steadfastness. We're reading 1039 to 1045. But may you until then, as Spurgeon says, stand as a sparkling pile of precious gems inhabited by the eternal spirit to the praise and the glory of God's grace by which he has made us accepted in his beloved Son and our beloved Saviour. May God bless us until we have an opportunity to sit at Christ's feet once again. Amen. <laughs>